You know, growing up, I wasn't the most prolific reader. Reading was always challenging because if you grew up like I did in East Texas and you were good at football, they'd put you through school and you didn't really have to read that much or learn to read that much. They would just move you along. I would live to regret that later in life when I didn't get to do much reading and I saw there was so much that I missed. So when I discovered audiobooks, it was a real gift. I got to go back and listen to things that I'd heard people had said they had read about because I'd heard all of these stories, but I never read them. Now I get to listen to them in an audiobook, and that was really different for me, and I would say life-changing in a way. And one of the best books I've ever listened to is Maria Hinojosa's memoir, Once I Was You. She opened up about her family's migration from Mexico to the U.S., her path to becoming the journalist that we've all come to love. What I love the most, that for more than two decades, Maria's been documenting our stories. She became the first Latina correspondent for NPR back in the 80s. Over the years, she's covered all kinds of stories, from poverty in the South to immigration to mental health. And let's not forget, she's won four Emmys for her work. And if you're like me, you've probably seen her recently on your TV reporting on CNN, MSNBC, PBS. You may have caught her lately in the new movie, In the Heights. I also got a chance to learn more about Maria as a woman, as a mother, as a co-worker, and even as a fitness influencer boxing out in Central Park. We talked about Chicago, New York City, and her journey to where she is today as CEO of Futuro Media. And as Maria said during our interview, we as Latino people are literally documenting American history with our stories. This is the very first episode of Nuestro featuring my sister, my friend, award-winning journalist, Maria Hinojosa. I personally got to know you through your book, which we'll talk about soon. But what, what I really want people to understand, they get to see the fancy Maria on TV and in the movies. But tell me about Maria, the little girl in Mexico. <laughs> I'm like the fancy Maria on TV and in the movies. It's like, well, I really haven't <laughs> left my house for like a long time. And all of those things that you mentioned, like, you know, being on TV or being in the movie in the Heights, which definitely was a dream come true, really, to me, are a reflection of, yeah, of kind of my commitment to being visible. How does that happen? It doesn't happen immediately. As you know, Chuck, it's not like you're just like, oh, my God, I'm 12 years old and I'm a powerful Latina. I'm a powerful Mexican right here. No, son años. Of course, the idea with us is that we want to. We want to make that happen for young people sooner. But that that little Maria, you know, I was the youngest of four. And my dad was a nerd from Tampico who had an insane dream of wanting to help people who were born deaf, who wanted to be able to hear again. He was like, I want to I want to make that happen. So it's kind of like having a father who's like, I want to go to the moon. And people are like, that's loco, you know. And my mom from Mexico City, Berta, who was, uh, to use that term, if you will, that's always used for Latinas, but she definitely is a firecracker. She was just like, what? And so, you know, we moved to Chicago when I'm really small. That's the whole story of my arrival in this country. And my early years were in a very safe place. Uh, kind of this Mexican nest, first in um, in Boston, actually, outside of Cambridge, and then in Chicago, which is where we settled. It was all Spanish. There were 
nacimientos in my home. Even though we were not really Catholic, my dad was a scientist. And so it was like, mm, Jesus going to church, praying? No, that was not my dad. But we had nacimientos. You know, it was all always Mexican food. It was never about abundance. It was always like, no hay, no hay, no hay. And just kind of, you know, it, because my dad was a, a medical doctor, but he was a research medical doctor. So he he lived grant to grant. The other two parts of that young Maria was kind of being exposed to the civil rights era. And the other part that was central was my traveling in Mexico every year. Mexico became a, a source of ancestral um, power. It was like plugging me in with an electric cord and just being like, these are your ancestral roots. Know them, see them. They are a part of you. Growing up as a little girl in Chicago, other than it being shockingly cold, what do you remember about the neighborhood itself? Actually, we lived, I came later to describe it, actually, uh, Chuck, in the early 1990s when people were having a conniption about things going multicultural. I don't know if you remember that, but there was like, <gasps> the United States is going to be teaching multiculturalism. Oh, my God, what's happening? Very similar to critical race theory, like, oh, my God. And I was just like, but, you know, if you want to take that term multicultural, which is a little outdated, I grew up in a multicultural utopia. That's what Hyde Park was like. It was very black. It was Jewish. It was white. There were Chinese folks. Not a lot of Mexicans there. Los Mexicanos, we were, I say we, o sea, la comunidad mexicana was on 18th Street in Pilsen. And so I was shuttling between these two because my dad, you know, would drive to work five minutes away from our house near the University of Chicago. That's why we lived in that community. My parents had very, like, boundaries, racial boundaries, all of that kind of racial hatred, all of that. They didn't really understand it. It was very foreign, and actually it was a source of making them distrust this country deeply, which they were right. We we were kind of borderless. We would travel deep into Black communities because we were like, well, why not? And we'd travel deep into Mexican communities because we were like, of course. And we'd travel deep into white communities where where they did not like people of color. And we were kind of like, yeah, we'll do this too, even though we might kind of lay low in the seats a little bit. Like we were like, mm. and And I think that and being exposed to the civil rights era you know, actually hearing Martin Luther King speak, like seeing him on television. Dr. Martin Luther King, dear. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history. You know, those things really mark you. I mean, of course, now... Like when I see a movie like Judas and the Black Messiah, and I'm like, that was my neighborhood. That was my neighborhood. You see the política sucia that has existed in Chicago. That also marked me because I was I was experiencing that. I was living that. And I believe, like you do, that we are deeply political human beings, whether we express it in one way or another. We are all, all impacted by the politics around us. I think back now after knowing who you are later in life of reading your book and listening to your book, it made me understand more because I grew up in that same time, a world away in East Texas, hence why we speak so differently, but connected by that commonality of bond of sisters and brothers and folks in struggle. 
So when it's time to leave college, you leave Chicago and head to the Big Apple, New York City, where you majored in Latin American study. You also took a campus job as a producer and a host of a student radio show. What was it like to hear your voice on the radio for the very first time? So the reason why I end up doing college radio is because it was really because of political commitment. I go in like any first year person and I'm doing, you know, it's the orientation week and I'm like trying to see what what do I like? Do I want to take a dance class? Do I want to be a part of the French club? Do I want to be a part of the, you know, the communist club? I mean, why back then it was the young socialists. There were, so there were like political things. And among that, I was like Columbia University, which is the main institution. Barnard College is the women's college and remains the women's college affiliated but separate from Columbia University. Columbia University had like a serious college radio station, like they had won awards. They were all jazz and classical, so they were like really f- changing the format. They had a 90-mile listenership. So you think about 90 miles all around New York City, plus all of New York City, you know, 8 million That's people. huge. That's it's just massive, huge. you know. And so it was like, whoa, what, you know, what, let me go see what they do. And there were some guys who were running what was called the Latin music department. It was salsa music three nights a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., And Latinos had fought political battles during the 1960s and early 70s on the campus where there were takeovers and the same kind of conversation of we want to be seen, we want to be represented. And the Latinos were like, we want time on the air at WKCR. And they fought and they got, you know, is it prime time? I think for the Latino community in New York, doing 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. was like really hot. Actually, it was a great time slot. I just wish I could still do it now. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Me and you both. Me and you both. <laughs> but anyway, so I um, I was like, hi, my name is Maria. And or actually back then it was I still referred to myself as Maria. And I was like, but here's my number. You know, I stopped in every now and then and tried to do a little bit of news because I was like, maybe I want to do journalism because I don't really know salsa, not Puerto Rican. I want to totally respect like that space that they have fought for in this city. Maybe I could do news reporting on Central America, Cuba, Puerto Rico. Eh, One year passes. And when I come back to begin the second year of college, I get a call and they're like, hey, we need to meet with you. And it was like, okay, what? And they like, listen, one of our guys is leaving. We have the Wednesday night slot open, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. And we need you to take over that slot. And I was like, what are you I was a, I was starting my second year in college. You know, you're like, like, wh- what are you guys talking about? Are you crazy? Like, I've never been on the air. I don't, I, they were like, do you have records? We know that you like Nueva Canción, which was a political, <laughs> is a political song movement. It's actually a song movement about politics and people in struggle. Yeah, I was political already. And my brother had collected Quilapayun, Intilimani, Mercedes Sosa, Victor Jara. You know, I had I had 10 records. And they said, well, if you have 10 records, that's 10 records more than anybody else we know. You got to do this. And then he looked at me, my Puerto Rican friend, and he was like, you have to do this. This is your responsibility. We fought for these hours. You, you are a Latina who is representing. You have to do this. And I was like, oh, 
okay, responsibility. And so then the next thing you know, there I was on the radio and hearing my voice, that was the last thing. I didn't even, it was very hard for me, Chuck, to hear my voice because, (laughs) remember, it was like cassettes and LPs. I would have had to like be recording my voice and then I would have had to have a cassette recorder. You, This was before Walkmans. People are like, what are you talking about? What's a Walkman? So in order to have a cassette recorder, even it was like not something that everybody had a lot of. So you're asking me if I heard my voice. I didn't actually spend a lot of time hearing my voice because it was not as easy as now. Now you record yourself, you hear yourself, you know, you play yourself back. We didn't have that back then. But I do, of course, remember when I did hear my voice and I was like, you sound terrible. You should never do this. Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> I Stepping back in time, it was, it was a different age for all of you kids listening right now that you couldn't just... There was no thing as an iPhone. Exactly. We both remember when I carried a, a pager as an organizer, and folks in East Texas didn't know if I was a drug dealer or a labor <laughs> organizer, and I was a little of one or the other. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Look, <laughs> there's a part in your book I got to ask you about, and a lot of people may not know this, but I read that you had this really strong desire to become an actress after graduation. I need to know where that came from and what made you want to go on and be the next great actress in Hollywood. Well. To be honest, um, I think it's because I was the youngest. And so, I mean, definitely, I don't think my sister, who was the eldest, therefore, you know, under my parents' very intense watch, I don't think this would have, and it was never her dream, by the way. But as the youngest of four, ya más americanizada, if you will, you know, there's a moment that I write about, which is kind of, it feels a little like, oh my God, but especially if you go back and you actually watch West Side Story, the original, which I did. But in the movie, Natalie Wood, who is white, but looked like my mom, a, a different kind of version in the, you know, because her hair was super dark, super intense eyebrows, you know, like all of these things that you did not see on American television. And so when Tony is singing to her, my, you know, the song in West Side Story, I think there was something in me that was like, I want to be that. I want to be that. I want to be that person who's doing that. Like, I can see myself doing that. I mean, I think it's totally crazy that I would imagine that. But it was such an important moment for me because before that, Chuck, I was, didn't exist. You know, que Maria? What Maria? What? There were no Marias anywhere except for in Mexico. So in the United States, I was invisible. Now, for many of us as Latinos and Latinas and people of color in this country, a lot of those like, oh, that's what sadly revolve around these moments of being invisible and then suddenly feeling visible or being targeted because of who we were or feeling discriminated against. So it's not always a pretty picture, but I think we need to do the work of telling these stories. So I love the fact that you're like asking me to talk about these memories because we are documenting American history with our stories. You've had this thing at college, and then you thought about being an actress. Well, then you start transitioning into this journalism and into being a storyteller. I think what I want people to hear next is, what was that that drove you in that direction to feel like, well, this is maybe what I want to do? Well, I definitely was not going to be an actress. So that, like, when you get to New York and you're just like, well, actually, something very specific happens. I I, I meet a director. Um, I audition for something. And this white male director, who knows how old he was? You know, I was 
17, 18. And, um, and he was like, you know, that was a very good audition, but I'm not exactly sure how I see you in this business because you're not tall enough or short enough or Latina enough or Mexican enough or white enough or street enough or sophisticated enough. Like, I'm not really sure. Like, where, like, he wanted to fit me into a box where I was just like, but am I a good actor? And I think that that, that I allowed that to kill my dream. And then you come to New York where everybody that you met wanted to be an actor. Um, and so I did let that, go by the wayside. Yeah, there was a period of time in the United States where there were no Latinas doing journalism. Very few women. Barbara Walters was the first one who I saw that I remember doing television reporting. So women, or in general, were not doing journalism. Latinas, olvídate, completely invisible. There was one, one moment when somebody called me when I was doing my radio show on a Wednesday night. And this guy called me up and he was like, you know, I work at NPR. I produce for them. And you really have a voice for, for radio. <laughs> Speaking of my voice, Chuck. And I was like, are you kidding? He was like, you really should, you should do, you should do this. Like you may be able to do this. I think that planted the seed, but there was a lot of insecurity between that phone call and actually finally, you know, filling out the application to be an intern at all things considered. Um, once I, walked into the newsroom at NPR, even though I was the first Latina ever to walk into the editorial spaces of NPR. I, I was like, oh man, this is this is just so cool. Like I, I wanted, oh my God, the whiteboard, you know, because there's no computers. <laughs> there were no computers. It was all typewriters with three pages, three plies. Everything was copied three times when you would type. That's how you would get copies to people was actually doing it on three plies or running it in a do we have a Xerox copy machine? Um, but I walked in there and I was like, oh my God, this is, because I loved journalism. I was a journalism addict. My whole family was because, yeah, we were consuming the news every single night and morning. We were talking about the news of the United States of America. And so even though I never saw myself or my father or my mother or my community or I, I was still watching when I walked into that room and I was like, oh, so this is where the magic happens. This is, and I'm in here. Somehow I made it into the, oh, hell yes, I'm right here. And that I think um, planted the seed. But it was, of course, of course, there were a lot of rejections on, on the way between that moment of just like, yeah, I want to do this and actually making it happen. And I think that for us Latinos, Latinas, Latinx, all of the folks of color who've showed up in that room, especially us, Maria, who are a little bit older, who were some of the first, right? I've been doing campaigns for 31 years. I was always, when I got into that room, a little intimidated, felt my vulnerabilities, but didn't have anybody to ask about it. And these issues have been around a long time. So tell me how you go from wanting to perform to joining NPR and helping launch Latino USA nearly 20 years ago. Take us back to that moment in time and how did Latino USA come to be? Yeah, so it was, get ready for it, a political battle. <laughs> it was a political battle. Okay, so you have to, again, if you go back to 1968 and everything that happened in the United States, right, part of what the conversation, like it is now, was about media representation. So the 1970s really were about demands. I mean, people don't realize that Latinos and Latinas we were on the front lines of pushing for this. And for example, here in New York, 
Latinos and Latinas, radicals, Puerto Ricans, many of them from the some of them from the Young Lords took over. That was part of, you know, the the ethos were this notion of demands that we have from the journalism and media around us to do better. Sounds familiar? You know, it's just like, wow. Um, so when I get to public radio now as, um, cause I start as a production assistant in 1985 and frankly, I'm quite disappointed with how things, it wasn't moving fast enough for me. Cause when you're young, a year is an eternity. I was like, I need stuff. So that's when I make a decision that I want to be a reporter. I want to be a correspondent. I am not going to produce for somebody else. I'm going to find my voice and do this. And five years later, finally, I'm hired by NPR. And the reason why is because of someone from, uh, I guess Maria is originally from Northern California, Oakland. Maria Emilia Martin um, is the instigator of the radical Latina in public media who goes with members of Congress. Uh, Congress member Esteban Torres from California back then was one. And it was like the demand was, why is the Corporation for Public Broadcasting getting money from taxpayers and funding NPR and NPR is not delivering on giving Latinos and Latinas visibility. That's essentially why one of the reasons why I'm hired as the first Latina um, reporter at NPR, even though very quickly it's like, oh, you're not just going to report on Latino issues. You're reporting. You're, you're a good reporter. You're a badass reporter. You're going to report on everything. And um, and you're a Latina and isn't that great. And Latino USA is created two years later, again, because of Maria Emilia Martin pushing, uh, again, this time, uh, the Ford Foundation, the University of Texas at Austin, uh, Gilberto Cárdenas, uh, to basically say, it's still not good enough. We have to do our own. We're going to create our own version of All Things Considered. And that is where Latino USA is born. Um, and honestly, Chuck, everybody was like, oh, how cute. It'll last like a year. <laughs> It'll last two years. It'll last three years. And then we were on for five years. And then we were on for 10. And then and then what happened was we just never stopped. The powers that be kind of were like, eh, at different times, indifferent to us or interested in us. But we never disappeared. Like we were always there. We and and then in 2010 is when I take over Latino USA and I bring the production under Futuro Media. And then I think it was simply because uh, prior to that, I was just the anchor. I was not producing the show and the show just needed a lot of TLC and we gave it to it. And here we are, you know, almost 30 years later. Um, yeah. In 2023, we will be 30 years on the air. When you got put in that position of power, I'm curious. How did you change the show as far as the folks behind the scenes? Did you were you intentional about giving Latinos, Latinas behind the camera producers, assistant producers? Do you get a say so in that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So so the reason why I create Futuro Media is because I'm like, I want to create my own newsroom. I am going to well, I didn't have a job, straight up. Okay, so that's the truth. So the job now on PBS, that was gone. You know, 60 Minutes was like, can you come back when one of these old white guys gets sick or dies? And I was like, what? Because that was my dream job. And I suddenly I was up against the wall and I could not, as an immigrant 
go on unemployment, which is silly. I should have, but instead, I was like, okay, well, I've learned how to raise a little bit of money. I'm I'm going to figure this out, and I create Futuro Media as a nonprofit because I understood raising money from foundations, and I understood journalism as as a public good, as a service, not to make money. And so, really, it's at that point when I'm like the jewel in the crown is Latino USA, and. I'm going to take it over from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT, uh, the Center for Mexican American Studies, and I'm going to, as it were, bring it to New York. But the idea behind Futuro, of which Latino USA was now a part of, was to create the newsroom that I always wanted. We tell stories and report in depth on issues often overlooked in the media. No Islamophobia in our country. We're going to fight back. I'm going to act as if I'm documented. I'm going to speak as if I was documented. A newsroom where representation was just organic because it was like, what do you mean you can't find journalists of color or women journalists? So what are you talking about? Like, they're everywhere. Today we were having a meeting, Chuck, uh, about a project that's called the, the We Imagine Us project. It's a whole project about reimagining the future. And I'm looking at my team. I'm like, look at these people. Man. So it's like class diversity. It's racial diversity. It's religious. It's ethnic. It's everything. And that's what I wanted in our newsroom. Um, it was very intentional. Now it's like we're the littlest huge company or we're a huge little company because we're having a pretty big impact, but we're still relatively small, even though for me, Chuck, the fact that we have like, como quien dice, 30 employees, I'm just like, no puede ser. But here we are. Here we are. And it's because I think we're authentic that we have this success. That's why I think it's going so good. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, there's just so much comparable uh, with me and you and our journeys. And I feel like we have aligned so much. You know, my little consulting farm is 100% Latino owned and operated. And over the years, I feel like that's what's made us better at campaigning. Like it's made you better at journalism, having those diverse voices there, empowering those folks. And when people ex- come to me and they're like, Chuck, why is solidarity? Why are y'all so good at mobilizing? I'm like, cause Latinos are running this joint. So going back to the journalism piece and you covering stories with your company and with your career that most people don't cover. And I could list a million of those. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. What are the ones that have stuck with you that you remember? Like the ones that 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 moved you the most, knowing that you've covered one moving topic after another? Bro, I got to say, that's really hard. I can just tell you that right now, for example, I just returned from a reporting trip in the field to central Mississippi. And so I, um, I'm kind of still deep in that space, which is a part of the country that most people think of only as black and white, and it is not that. Um, that even people in Jackson, when these are this is, these are communities all around them, they're just like, well, wait, we're Latinos where? And it's like, oh my God, they're everywhere in, in the state of Mississippi. So right now, estoy muy impactada thinking about what's happening in these places, mostly because they are not going anywhere. So if you think of Mississippi as a place that has really put like the hatred full on with laws, with attitudes, with the history of oppression of black people now being used to oppress, uh, you know, brown and Spanish speaking and indigenous speaking, indigenous language speaking people, um, you know, all of that. And they're still, they love Mississippi and they are not going anywhere. So uh, right now I'm thinking a lot about that. 
I want to make sure that you know that I appreciate your visit to Mississippi and that I felt seen as a little Mexican boy who grew up in a trailer house with a 15-year-old mother. I think your part about being seen and seeing those stories told touched me and touched me immensely when I saw you reporting about that. It brought back a lot of memories, good and bad. But also a recent thing that you've been involved in that I also felt seen in that I want to talk about, which was the first podcast series that I really ever listened to. Uh, and it was an interview with uh, with Suave. And I should tell everybody that my favorite interview guest of hers all time has been David Luis Suave Gonzalez. He's a Latino man. He's a brother. He's a friend. He's an artist. He was also a juvenile lifer. As someone who's also been in the system, who has a criminal record that I talk about all the time, you know, hearing his story and about your friendship with him and Suave, the podcast really moved me. When did you realize that the story of Suave needed to be told. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, you got to go way back, right? I mean, I'm a young journalist uh, at NPR, uh, recently married. I was doing um, some reporting check that was getting attention because, again, I was speaking a lot to young men of color who were um, invisible from the national media. And so I was telling some of these stories and I get invited to go to this prison Greaterford Prison in Pennsylvania. It's 1983. And, um, I meet this kid named Suave, who's like, basically like, I'm going to be here for life. Like, what should I do? And I was like, well, if you're going to be here, become my source. Like, let's just stay in touch. Like, tell me everything I want to know. I mean, I started, we started communicating, but it's, it's pretty hard in prison. You know, I mean, I would send letters who knew, you know, sometimes he would get them because he also went into solitary for long periods of time. And as you know, when you're talking to somebody who's behind bars, you you don't really spend a lot of your time, at least I didn't, like, well, so let's talk about your case. When are you going to get out? Because he was sentenced to life without parole. We're not going to talk about the case or what you're doing because it would have to have been a miracle for him to get out. And I was, as a journalist, not going to be the one who's like, well, you know, you should really seek commutation or you should. I, that was not my role. Then we begin to hear that the Supreme Court is hearing cases about whether or not sentencing young people, juveniles, uh, whether it is cruel and inhuman to sentence a juvenile to life without the possibility of parole, i.e. life and the door, the key is locked, the door is locked behind you and the key is thrown away, you will never come out. And so there was, the Supreme Court said actually, yeah. That's when I said, oh my God, we need to start recording everything with Suave. And ultimately what you heard was years in production. And there are a lot of twists and turns. Uh, that podcast, I I'd like to say to young people in general, um, and to anybody and to journalists too, just don't ever, don't ever walk away from a story because you never, never, ever know. And there were many times along the way when it was like, oh, you know, we can't finish this, can't find the money, can't find the person to produce it, can't, we can't, you know, and I was like, no, we have to keep on trying. And I just never gave up. And ultimately here we are. And I'm hoping that we're going to be able to produce Suave season two. And he's doing well. 
But this kind of leads to a question that I can't understand that I know makes you 10 times stronger than me, is that when you listen to the stories that you tell, and I'm a storyteller like you in a different way. So I tell a story to the people to get them to vote for some candidate or fight back against what immigration policy is doing this or to try to get health care. Like I'm a narrator to create a story. But my stories aren't pulling at my emotions every day, whether it's suave, it's the little girl in the airport, it's the things that you talk about in the book, like how Maria, and and I got to know this, and I don't mean to get too personal, but how do you walk away from these emotional things that you throw yourself into and then have a real life? Well, if if I hadn't just taken a deep breath, I'd actually be in tears right now, weeping in, in answer to your question, but I'm holding back because I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm really like, no, don't do that right now because uh, today was one of those days, actually, Chuck. I, I mean, a lot is going on. Obviously, there are things I cannot reveal. All of it has to do with reporting and stories that I'm covering and people that I know or that I'm getting ready to go and report. Um, I'm getting ready to go to the border in Arizona to see the desert for myself and um, the attempts to save people simply by giving them water. And somehow this government spends billions of dollars to prevent people from having water. And they've been doing that for decades. So I'm getting ready to do that. And so really hard. And so you know, in a morning like this, I'm like, okay, well, and I did, I actually cried a little bit and I meditate. That's what I do. I meditate, you know, I got, I, I, right now I'm doing a lot of music meditation. Sometimes I'm doing intense mantra meditation. Sometimes I'm doing talk meditation. So walk meditation, but you know, so then I just got into my space because I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I have, I have to work today. And then I work out. This is the other thing that I do is, you know, and I'm, I just started working out again after having been in the field and traveling. And so I'm having to regain my strength. And I was out boxing the last two mornings. This morning I was doing some weightlifting and I was like, people ask me, what are you thinking about when you're doing, you know, and I'm just like, that's why I do it because I don't think about shit. I don't think about anything. I don't think about anything. It's the only time when I'm just like, I'm not, I'm thinking about, I'm sweating. I'm thinking about my form. I'm thinking about, can I make it through these, you know, 20 reps? Can I, why is this so hard? And that's how I've been able to, you know, save my life. I have an incredible family that also keeps me grounded. Sometimes it's hard for them. It's hard for me to hear when they're like, you need to stop. We are here. We need you. This is the long haul. And then then this is not going to get any easier. It's getting uglier and uglier and more intense because it's more sinister because of the fact that we are all um, digitally connected. So that's our, that's our liberation and our torture. I think you're so right. And, and I did want to mention the working out and I've only got one more question left. The working out with your, what I would like to call your tribe, if I may, who I see you working out with. And the reason I do it is I tell people I'd get my best thinking done in the morning because people aren't pulling at me. I'm not engulfed by news of bad things happening around me and I'm in my space. So I respect what you're saying. I love it. I love it. You know, of course, the name of the podcast is called Nuestro. So what does Nuestro mean to you, Maria? It's interesting that you would preface that question with talking about my tribe. Um, Because, um, you know, this is a group of people who I did not know before the pandemic. And we all ended up meeting because of the pandemic in the park, um, working out together, boxing, 
um, and lifting and doing crazy stuff. And of course, as you know, if you watch me dancing, doing a lot of dancing at seven o'clock in the morning in Harlem, in the rain, in the cold, in the sun, in the snow, in the freezing, we're, we're, we're out there acting crazy. And so not everyone in that group is Latino or Latina. It so happens that many of us are immigrants. Uh, the trainer is Mano. He's from Senegal. Um, one of our, my partners there is a German born, but married to un Colombiano. So she speaks Spanish. Really different backgrounds, African immigrant women and, and white women and all like, and, and kind of an intense group. You know, we are right in the middle of uh, Morningside Park. And so, it it is a place where many workers go up and down the stairs to get to their jobs. And so I see many of mis paisanos who may be Mexican, Ecuadorian, eh, Hondureño, Puerto Ricano, lo que sea, you know, and, and they, they watch us and they think we're kind of cool. And the other morning, because I had just come back from Mississippi, um, where Estrella, the trans activist from Georgia, led everybody on a chant at an event where she was chinga la migra y chinga. And as you know, I, I'm a journalist, so I don't usually lead people in chants. I happened to that morning. It was my first morning back from uh, Mississippi. And I was just like, chinga la migra. And they all kind of, they looked down and they were like, orale. Like what? You know, so that's nuestro too, is just kind of using our voices, saying what we want. Nuestro is also like, dancing our dances in the middle of that, doing el perreo at that hour so that everybody can see. That's what nuestro is, is una comunidad that doesn't have borders. Que es una comunidad sin fronteras? That's what nuestro means to me. Maria Hinojosa is our sister. She's our friend and she is nuestro. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Chuck. And thank you for all you do. And I was really, I love this interview. Thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. To check out Maria's work, including the Suave podcast we talked about earlier, please head over to our show notes. Nuestro is a production of Solidarity Strategies. Gabrielle Horton is our executive producer. Cynthia Pemetel is our lead producer. And Kevin Liu is our sound engineer. Our theme music is composed by Joel Rodriguez. If you want to hear more episodes like this, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. It's going to be a new episode every week. And most important, don't forget to follow me at Chuck Rocha on the Twitters. My staff would be so upset if I don't tell you about the social medias and the Twitters. And my mom is on Facebook, so I'm only going to give you the Twitters account. Adios, and until next week.